actually, I don't, I don't think that uh, our eternal destiny is a matter of choice. I mean, people present it that way, but Paul seems to explicitly deny that uh, in uh, Romans 9. He says, so it depends not on human will or exertion. Now, this is the new RSV uh, translation, and the King James reads a bit differently. But So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Because all of God's actions are merciful. The kindness that he speaks of in uh, in Romans 11 is an expression of his mercy towards the, the obedient. His severity, his judgment, hardening of a heart, blinding the eyes of the unbelieving Jews is an expression of mercy. And therefore you have no choice. God's going to be merciful to you no matter what you do. But the problem is people think of mercy as as, as some kind of sentimental kind of happiness. Mercy is what God does in order to meet your true spiritual needs. The muddy banks of my heart friends and welcome back to the can i say this at church podcast i am seth i'm very excited that you're here we're going to talk about salvation and hell and some of those topics and so as i look back month over month over month for like the last almost two years the most popular episodes have been on hell so way back in the day of 2017 i was able to talk by phone with thomas talbot who is the Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Williamette University in Salem, Oregon. And we discussed, and so he was one of the first people that I actually uh, reached out to, and I couldn't find an email address, and so I just called the number that I found listed for him on the internet, and I believe I got his wife. I left a voicemail. Uh, No, I I got his wife, and I left a message. And I said, hey, here's what I want to do. Can I talk with your husband? She said, he's out now. Let me get with him and see if he'll call you back. And then he called me back. And we kind of discussed it over the phone of him coming on. And at the time, I had not recorded any episodes. So the first episode that I recorded uh, was with Jared Bias and Robin Perry on the same day. And so to be honest, when he asked me what I was trying to do, I really struggled to tell him what. But I'm glad that he could hear the intentionality in my voice. So he called me back later and decided to come on. And then I just let it sit. So, you know, I talked about evangelical universalism with Robin Perry, and I talked about annihilationism with John Stackhouse, and then I did annihilationism again with Chris Date. And as I thought back on it, I was like, I need, I've had this sitting here. I've listened to it a few times. I've been entirely pleased with it, but I just felt like it wasn't time yet to revisit that topic. But I feel like it is now. And so some caveats with this episode. Uh, I still didn't really know what I was doing, but it doesn't make my questions and his answers any less important or any less impactful for me. As a matter of fact, as I listen back to it, I find I'm still struggling with some of the same things. And other things, I hear myself and I go, oh man, Seth, you've, you, you've grown. There are things that I am more comfortable with now or I have more knowledge about now or just through contemplative prayer or meditation or just regular prayer. I am, I am at a more healthy place now than I was in December of 2017. And so I really hope that you like this. And so for patron supporters, this will be a repeat for you. Uh, A lot of you heard this months ago in a totally unedited form with no music. And so I'm really grateful for for humans like Thomas that would take a risk talking with a random Yahoo out in Virginia. I'm so sorry that it's taken this long to get it out, but I feel like it's time to revisit hell and salvation. And so I hope that you enjoy this episode with Thomas Talbot. My guest today is uh, Dr. Thomas Talbot, and um, Dr. Talbot, I just wanted to thank you very much for making the time to to come on to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, could you repeat one more time what, what what the podcast name is? 
Sure. So it's Can I Say This at Church? Just a podcast oh, where... Say... Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, for those of my, you know, of the listeners that, that aren't as familiar with you, I was hoping you could maybe give us a brief, just a, a quick snapshot of, of who you are and kind of how you came uh, to, the, to the positions that you hold now. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I suspect I may have come from the same background as you did, Well, or at least a similar one, a very conservative evangelical church. Uh, I went to a very conservative Christian high school. The church I attended when I was uh, in high school and college was closely associated with Dallas Theological Seminary and was into uh, uh, dispensationalism a lot something that I subsequently uh, rejected. Um, I was first, I first encountered Calvinism when um, I was in college, and I rejected it immediately. I just couldn't uh, believe that anyone could believe that uh, before the foundation of the world, God foreordained that some people would suffer eternally in hell. What college was that? Uh, Portland State University. Okay. Uh, it was through InterVarsity. Uh, the pastor of the woman I eventually married <laughs> came and, and gave a talk, and he and I ended up with a huge argument. Um, and uh, later on, he married us. <laughs> so I, I take it you all have moved past that then? Well, uh, we always actually had a good relationship. We started off with a, with a huge argument. Uh, and of course he would go into things like Romans 9 and I didn't know what to say about that. Um, and, uh, anyway, uh, uh, he, he felt that I was honest enough, I guess, <laughs> to, uh, deservedly marry the woman that I married. Um, but, um, the high school I went to sort of identified a good Christian as someone who didn't, uh, smoke, drink, dance. Roller skating was kind of iffy, play cards or attend Hollywood movies. So it was a very conservative cultural uh, background. My parents, however, were um, uh, much more open. My dad rarely went to church, but he felt that uh, his kids needed to be raised in the church. And my mom uh, became a Christian during her college days, uh, but was uh, had, had an incredibly loving nature. Anyway... Uh, during my uh, college and university days, or sorry, and, and, and seminary days, I went to for a theological seminary. My aim was to work out as best I could uh, a basically Arminian uh, theology. Uh, and I was very attracted to people like C.S. Lewis. Uh, and I was attracted to a, a free will theodicy of hell. Uh, actually, uh, uh, during all those years, it never even occurred to me that someone might uh, take uh, uh, the doctrine of universal reconciliation seriously. I mean, it just never even, I never even thought about it. And you asked, uh, well, how did I make the transition? It's interesting, my uh, younger brother, while I was in seminary, uh, uh, came under the influence of George MacDonald. And at this time, the works of McDonald weren't really available. Um, but he, through the library at, at Wheaton, had te uh, typescript copies of uh, a lot of McDonald's uh, unspoken sermons. And he gave a couple of them to me, one on justice and one on um, called The Consuming Fire. And uh, they didn't bowl me over right at the start. But the more I th thought about uh, McDonald's perspective and how different it was from the perspective that I had been inculcated with uh, uh, during uh, my younger days um, and how it put things together in a way that just seemed radically different uh, from what I had heard, and everything seemed to start making sense. Even Romans 9 started to make sense to me. Um, and so that was very influential in my starting to toy with the idea of universal reconciliation. 
Um, uh, so how did? But it didn't take long. It didn't take long until uh, uh, it just blew me away. I couldn't. I could. I couldn't read the Bible in any other way right now. Right. So when do you think? So you're was that while you were at Fuller or? No, or, actually, I think it ha- uh, after I graduated from Fuller, I went to University of California at Santa Barbara. Uh, in the philosophy department, and I think it was probably right after I uh, graduated from uh, from Fuller that I started uh, thinking uh, that you know, let's just see whether an interpretation of the Bible as a whole from a universalist perspective would make as much sense as interpreting it from the uh, perspective of a Calvinist or interpreting it from the perspective of an Arminian. And as it turns out, uh, if you take a proposition that all Calvinists defend, and you take a proposition that all Arminians defend, and put them together, you're going to have universalism. The proposition that all Calvinists defend, um, or that all Arminians defend, has to do with the extent and nature of God's love. That God sincerely desires, He wills or sincerely desires the salvation of all. The proposition that, um, uh, that, uh, the Calvinist defends has to do with the nature of Christ's victory or God's victory in Christ the nature and extent of that victory. God will successfully redeem all of those whom he elects, whom he chooses to redeem, who he wills or sincerely desires to redeem. Right, and that's, and that's what you, you had an issue with together, in high school. Pardon? And that's what you, that's what you rejected early in high school, was, was well, that? Well, early in college. In college, okay. Uh, well, uh, no... Um, I was assuming that uh, the doctrine of everlasting separation from God was true. And if that's true, then either you're going to have to reject the claim that God's love extends to all human beings, his redemptive love, his elective love, or you're going to have to, and that's what the Calvinists do, or you're going to have to reject the claim that God's victory is complete in the sense that he will successfully redeem everyone whom he wills or desires, sincerely desires to redeem. So your choice is between uh, a, a, a God who's limited in love or a God whose victory is limited. Well, and I guess there's always the other option for um, he's just fine with some people never being with him at all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I mean... Uh, I hope not, but... Uh, so, wait, sorry, I didn't... Uh, he, he's fine with some people never being with him at all. Does this include annihilating them? Yeah. Tormenting them? Yeah, so as I've done research, I've, I've seen... Yeah, the, the eternal conscious torment that I was raised in. Um, you know, he's fine with, you're not with me, and... Not only for that, I'm I'm fine for you to not be with me for forever, which which has never sat right with me, very much. Yeah, well, yeah, well, uh, uh, yeah. That's that's the issue here. Um, I think I misunderstood you just before, uh, um, because when you said, "Well, he's fine with not being with me," as if, well, okay, you guys go on and do your own thing, and I won't I won't harm you or anything like that. But the idea of separation. It's either going to include um, annihilation, or it's going to include punishment, or it's include it's going to include God's providentially uh, providing a place for these people to live, sort of without any any uh, conscious interaction with Him. It's going to have to be one of those three, right? Yeah, yeah. So how do you? So how can I? So I, from reading portions of your book, the, I, I find that 
you make the argument that you can't scripturally support all three of those, that you have to reject one of them to sit well. Yeah, to sit in well. other words, we've got here three propositions that are logically inconsistent. And even if a person comes to me and says, well, I don't think they are logically inconsistent, I think I can you know, symbolize them and, and prove that they are logically inconsistent. But um, even if somebody says they aren't, uh, name me a single theologian who accepts all three. Uh, I don't know of any theologian uh, that would accept all three. Uh, the majority of uh, uh, theologians in the Western tradition, anyway, would reject the claim that uh, 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 would accept the claim that uh, uh, some people will be eternally separated from God. But uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, Sorry, uh, ask me a question here. <laughs> sure. Um, well, let me let me do this. So let me get it back to to scripture. So, can you give me some of the ways that that they're just scriptural references to support, or not necessarily support to support each, and then how they just how they can't go together? I guess as I read your book, I read through that portion a couple times. I think it's chapter four, where you kind of break down all three suppositions, and then. And then go on to say, you know, two of these are fine, but scripturally, the third can't hold any any weight, and and that's well, the problem. Actually, what what I argue is that uh, if you just pick up an English Bible and read it uh, uh, naturally, without bringing any theological presuppositions to the text, you will find um, uh, biblical texts that seem to support each of these propositions. Um, but they can't all be true. That's, that's the problem. Um, in support of the claim that God's love uh, extends equally to all, and he wills or desires that uh, all be saved, you know, uh, a naive reader of the English Bible might appeal to texts like Second uh, Peter three nine, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but wills instead that all should come to repentance. First Timothy two four, God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel thirty three eleven, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desire instead that the wicked turn away from their ways and live. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, a, a very interesting uh, Old Testament text is Lamentations 3.22 and 3.31 to 33. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. All of these texts seem to suggest that God really does want to achieve the reconciliation of all sinners. And, you know, and a text like 1 John 2, 2 suggests further that Jesus Christ suffered and died precisely in order to uh, achieve that end. For it says that... Um, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. And then, of course, in uh, in Second Corinthians, we it's clear that uh, God's attitudes towards us don't have doesn't have to change. Our attitude towards Him has to change. But anyway, so uh, there are plenty of texts that the Armenians would appeal to in order to suggest that God really does love all human beings in the sense that he wills or sincerely desires that each of them be reconciled to him and achieve some sort of union with him. But now we can turn to texts that the Calvinists like, which suggests that God is going to achieve all of his redemptive purposes. 
Ephesians 1.11, God accomplishes all things according to his will and counsel. Job 42.2, I know that you, the Lord God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, or um, Isaiah 46.10 and 11, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. I mean, these texts seem to imply that God is able to accomplish all of his purposes, including his redemptive purposes. And then, of course, in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, God ultimately brings all things into subjection to Christ. But then, of course, we've got the, the issue of eternal separation. And if you pick up a, 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 a an English Bible and read it sort of naively, without bringing a lot of theological assumptions to it, you will probably come across Matthew 25:46, which says, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Second Thessalonians 1, 9. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstones, which is the second death. And these texts may seem to imply that all, that at least some persons will be lost forever and therefore never reconciled to God. Yeah, yeah. So, so question, uh, question my about... Point is, my point is that um, you've got uh, prima facie support in the Bible for all three propositions, the proposition about God's love, the proposition about his his uh, success in uh, achieving his will, and the proposition that some people will be eternally separated from God. And, you know, there's, there's something maybe I, I, I kind of like to uh, read here. It's just, it's just two or three lines um, because the point is that uh, various texts in the Bible initially appear to support and, in fact, have been cited on behalf of each of our three propositions. With respect to each of them, some theologians and Bible scholars have concluded that it is a fundamental, not a peripheral, but a fundamental teaching of the Bible. The when, you point say, is, when you say it is fundamental, you mean you mean the conversation about... Eternal separation, is that what you now, mean when you say it? No, each proposition, uh, let, let me back off here and, and give a clear explanation of the total strategy. In order to have an interpretation of the Bible as a whole, you have to interpret some things in light of others, some texts in light of others. And so my strategy is to set up three propositions. They cannot all be true, but can but can all receive initial support from text in the Bible. And therefore, that's going to dictate how you're going to proceed. For example, the, uh, the Calvinist believes in eternal separation, and he believes that God's will can't be thwarted. Therefore, he rejects the claim that God sincerely desires or wills the salvation of all. The Arminian believes in eternal separation, but believes that God sincerely wills or desires the salvation of all. So the Arminian rejects the claim that God's will, his redemptive purpose, uh, to uh, uh, as expressed, for example, in the Timothy, Second Timothy, uh, um, or First Timothy two four, I think it is. Um, uh, he rejects the claim that uh, uh, God's will can't be thwarted. God's redemptive will, he rejects the claim that God's redemptive will will eventually be achieved. The Universalist accepts the Calvinist claim that God's uh, redemptive will can't be thwarted, 
and accepts the Armenian claim that God wills that all be saved, and he concludes that the third proposition is false. Switching a little bit of gears, but but I think it's it's something that I've always had a question about. So when you were going through some of those scriptures a minute ago, and you had like the Calvinists talking about you know eternally separated and burning in eternal fire and whatnot, there seems to be a big contention on how those are translated, and and so how can someone like myself with limited theological training know how to infer those texts if I was to just pick it up or if I was to hear someone speak about it at church or or just in talking and passing? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, as you know, uh, the word translated eternal uh, is debated uh, uh, by a lot of parties. What does it mean? Does it mean age-enduring? Uh, does it really mean everlasting? And my strategy is to let whoever I'm discussing with to uh, say what that person thinks. If I was if I was holding a discussion with a pastor of a church that wants to say this is this really does mean eternal, or at least everlasting. What we're talking about in Matthew 25:46 is eternal punishment. Well. What I would uh, what what I would say there is you got to be clear that we're talking about an adjective, and I don't care how you translate that adjective; it's the very nature of an adjective that it can vary, sometimes greatly, particularly when it's uh, referring to different categories of things in different contexts. Take the forget the Greek, take the English word everlasting. Um. An everlasting struggle would literally be a struggle that goes on forever and ever and never ends. It's the noun that's going to determine the meaning of, 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 of sorry, I, I'm getting a little confused here. Let me go back. Think of an everlasting change or an everlasting transformation or an everlasting correction. That might be uh, an event that's almost instantaneous. It could be, or it might be longer. Uh, but uh, uh, it depends on the noun that it's correlated with. Now, an everlasting correction uh, might have effects that endure forever, but... Um, it doesn't follow that the correction is going to take place over uh, an indefinitely long period of time. So we got to look at the noun. Now the noun, Colossus, is a word that, at least in ancient Greek, was a word for correction, remedial punishment. So... Um, Translate it, translate the word eternal as everlasting, I mean, the word ionius as everlasting, if you wish. It's still uh, going to be very different if it's an everlasting correction than it would be if it were everlasting retribution. So my claim about uh, Matthew uh, 25, 46 is that what we're talking about is a certain kind of correction. Okay. But, but uh, you know, that, that actually that doesn't really get to the heart of it, because I, I think that, the, that in the Bible, the word Ionius really is somewhat platonic. You know, we read, I guess it's in Hebrews, that, or, or Second Corinthians, that the things... The things that are seen are temporal, and the things that are unseen are eternal. 
That sounds a bit platonic to me. But um, the point is that when, when when it comes to God, what is eternal is God. And his gifts, his actions in time, various possessions are eternal in a secondary sense that they have their causal source in the eternal God himself. This gets this gets pretty complicated, and uh, I, I talk about it in my chapter on eschatological punishment and interpretation of New Testament teaching. In a in a universalism or or Christian universalism view of of the be all and end all at the end of everything, what what is what is hell? Yeah, um, hell is the way that we experience the love of God when we are in in a state of disobedience. So it's not it's not a future place to be. It's well, right it, now. There could be a future place uh, called hell. I don't rule that out. But hell would exist for the purpose of the ultimate redemption of those in it. What we have to uh, what we have to understand, I think, is how to put together two themes. The theme of Christ's victory over sin and death, and the theme of God's judgment. And um, one can either interpret God's judgment in light of his, his victory and triumph over sin and death, or one can interpret um, his triumph or his limited victory in light of, his, of the theme of justice. My view is that we should start with the victory and triumph, especially since Paul makes it so clear in his theological essay, Romans 9 through 11, that in the end, justice and mercy are the same. A hardening comes upon part of Israel in order that all of Israel will be saved. And when he, when he talks about, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Jews being disobedient so that uh, uh, the Gentiles can come in and then uh, there's a, this sort of strategy of jealousy where the, uh, all of the Jews will then come in. That is clearly um, uh, an indication that the non-remnant Jews. I mean, he said, what he's talking about are the non-remnant Jews there. And just in case you don't get the point, he sums it up with his magnificent statement in 1132, where God has imprisoned all in disobedience in order that he might have mercy upon all. The whole thing is uh, a merciful, it's the outworking of a merciful purpose. Everything God does, when he judges, when he hardens the heart, when he blinds the disobedient, all of that is in service, in, in the service of a more basic, uh, merciful purpose. Couldn't make it clearer. And the interesting thing is that, that if you look at his, um, uh, Paul's, uh, theological uh, discourse in Romans 9 through 11, it starts out in despair at the beginning of nine. I'm speaking the, uh, I'm speaking the truth. Uh, my conscience bears with me. I'm in great agony over the state of my, my brother, my kin. And it ends in joyous exultation. And what explains that sudden joyous turn to use an expression that I borrow from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who says that the essence of a good fairy tale is this sudden joyous turn. <laughs> I mean, we've been talking about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the hatred of Esau, and the vessels of wrath, and all of that. But now we find that it's all in the service of a more fundamental um, purpose. Mercy. God has imprisoned them all, in all of us, in disobedience so that he may be merciful to us all. I don't see how he could 
get any more explicit than that. So if I'm given, well, I guess one of the questions that I struggle with is, is my participation in this. So if I'm formed with the ability to embrace whatever I want to, how how do I have any say-so in my ultimate result of anything? Or I guess, for lack of a better word, and I, I think I read it in your book, and you talk about how um, Zachary Manis references Kierkegaard and defends that uh, people are just so damned and filled with hatred, and then if we want to remain in that state, that we can choose to do so. So how, how if I'm able, if that's correct, and I'm able to do that, how does that sit with a possibility that no, eventually, everything's going to be reconciled to Christ, eventually, whatever yeah. determinate amount of time that is. Yeah. Um, I think the, the the crucial thing here, uh, Seth, is that um, the consequences of our actions are a source of revelation. You know, uh, I, I can choose to put my hand in fire, but I cannot choose to put my hand in fire and not be burned. Our actions have consequences, and when we act in a disobedient way, uh, those consequences are going to result, are going to be uh, uh, instances of what some people call God's severity. You know, Paul says in uh, first part of Romans 11, note the severity and the kindness of God. If you act disobediently, you will experience God's love as severity. If you act obediently, you will experience it as kindness. And... Uh, so the general point is that the consequences of our actions are themselves a source of revelation. I may suffer from, you know, we humans suffer from all kinds of illusions. Our disobedience is the result of a, a host of uh, illusions. But if I suffer from the illusion that I have the skill to ski down a, a treacherous slope, um, and I, 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 so I, I, I go ahead and try and do it. A fall and a broken leg, or maybe repeated falls and repeated disasters, are going to reveal to me uh, the fact that uh, no, I don't have that skill. That was an illusion. When we act disobediently, we think we can benefit ourselves, oftentimes, at the expense of other people. But if we act upon that illusion, we will find again and again that we have not benefited ourselves. And at some, at some point, see, my own view is that the purpose of the lake of fire is actually, uh, to purge us of all the evil impulses. But if you, uh, if in the lake of fire someone still refuses to learn the proper lessons, you can always Leap into the outer darkness where you've got a soul suspended alone in sheer nothingness. George MacDonald has a beautiful uh, description of that horrific state. Can you go, can you go into that a little bit with George MacDonald? Because I'm not, I, I understand he's like early 1800s and so I'm not familiar No, he's uh late uh late 1800s. Oh, I got it wrong. I apologize. Um but I'm not familiar with with that. Can you can you go into how he describes that a bit? Well, um uh I don't have the text here to read, but um I mean in front of me, but um it it's just uh all I can say is that when he talks about the the outer darkness and the horrific state of living without any even implicit experience of God. Think of it as a soul suspended alone in nothingness. Think of John Milton's Satan, what, what he said about better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, in the outer darkness, there's nobody to reign over. 
because uh, if you have other people there, you're, you're all, all of a sudden going to start getting implicit experiences of God. What, what, what uh, uh, as I recall, um, McDonald's description is, God is still there with you. However much you despise God, he's there warming your heart, making life a good thing for you. But if he withdraws all of that, the suggestion is that... No one who's rational enough to be a free agent could possibly see that as a good thing. You know, C.S. Lewis said that union with God is, with the divine nature is the way he put it, is bliss. Separation from it is an objective horror. Well, no one who's rational enough to qualify as a free agent could possibly freely choose an objective horror over bliss. So what we have to do is learn the difference over our lifetime between the consequences of uh, submitting to God and the consequences of resi resisting and rejecting God. And I can understand how somebody could freely choose hell. What I can't understand is how somebody could freely choose hell and continue to choose it after experiencing it. Yeah, I can't either. So the purpose of experience and even even hell, uh, hellish conditions, is to teach us, and and therefore God's judgment, even when he, even if you were to send somebody to hell temporarily, would itself be an expression of mercy. It's not merciful to protect people from the consequences of their rebellion. That's why universalists, Christian universalists, do not, as many people charge, have a sentimental conception of hell, I mean, of love. They see God's mercy as a severe mercy. He will require us to learn the lessons we have to learn, not by just changing our mind, but allowing us the freedom to choose. And then letting us have the horrific condition that many of us choose to experience. That's hard, though. And, and I guess to oversimplify it, the best way that I could bring that metaphor down to me is, uh, well, a cosmic version of when I'm teaching my son to ride a bike. And I know that first time that I let go of the, of the training, he's going of, of to fall. The, fall and it's going to be horrible. Um, and so I guess you're saying that I know you're going to fall. And when you do, I will, I'll be here when you get back up and we're going to embrace and then we can move forward or we can keep, con or we can continue to try again until we get it correct. Is that, that may be an oversimplification, but is no, that. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that doesn't involve, you know, selfishness, uh, choosing to benefit oneself at the expense of others. And my vision of how we all come into this life is we come into circumstances in which illusion, ambiguity, and uh, ignorance play a, a, a huge role. And as a result, we are bound to go astray. I mean, sin is missing the mark. We are bound to go astray, and uh, uh, God does permit us to, because we have to learn the lessons. So it is a source of revelation, the consequences of our actions. I've, I've been gifted with the ability to be born in America. So what would you say to those who have, in this view of salvation, that were just born in the wrong country or in the wrong time period and never heard the redemption story of, of Christ? And so how would, you, how would you reconcile someone that's never heard the gospel dying the first death how do they have the ability to to be reconciled without even knowing the name Christ? Well, uh, I guess the issue here is, is there a time limit on God's love? So, suppose I were to say that you have to have heard and received Christ before the age of 30 or you're lost. Or you have to do so before the age of 40 or you're lost forever. Or you have to before the age of 70. Or you have to before the time of your death. Why would anybody accept that idea? There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that's true. 
I, I just don't see a problem there uh, with other religions and other cultures. We aren't responsible for the culture that we are born in, and those who have never heard of the gospel are not required to believe something that they've never even heard of. Why would anybody want to say that? But there will come a time, I guess, then, that, that they have the the option, the everlasting option, to make that choice, and ultimately everyone will. Actually, I don't, uh, I don't think that uh, our eternal destiny is a matter of choice. I mean, people present it that way, but Paul seems to explicitly deny that uh, in uh, Romans 9. He says, so it depends not on human will or exertion. Now, this is the new RSV uh, translation, and the King James reads a bit differently. But So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Because all of God's actions are merciful. The kindness that he speaks of in uh, in Romans 11 is an expression of his mercy towards the, the obedient. His severity, his judgment, hardening of a heart, blinding the eyes of the unbelieving Jews, is an expression of mercy. And therefore you have no choice. God's going to be merciful to you no matter what you do. But the problem is people think of mercy as as, as some kind of sentimental kind of happiness. Mercy is what God does in order to meet your true spiritual needs. I'm good. I'm good with that. I think I'm good with that. <laughs> so <laughs> You may be good more than some of your listeners, maybe. <laughs> well, uh, just full disclosure, so as, as, I've, as I've done this, I, a, a lot of the people that I'm asking questions of, they're not, it's not scripted. They're, they're real questions that I've always wondered if I could say out loud. Um, and the older I get, yeah. I'm finding that it's, it's fine to do so. Um, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. So I do have one last question and it's not necessarily related to universalism, but it is, it is a question that I'm curious to get everyone's opinion on. So in your sure. view in the church, the way that it exists currently, either globally or, or nationally, what is, what is the one thing that you feel as Christians that we could and should do uh, in a generative practice that, that would help move the church forward or the cause for Christ forward day to day that maybe we're not doing now? Yeah, um, that, that's, that's a, a hard one because I don't want to dictate politics or even religion to anybody, my sense would be just really practice love. You know, the two great commandments, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And uh, I know uh, at the high school I went to, we were always being uh, be told that we needed to witness and all this. But a lot of that witnessing wasn't really anything but to sort of respond to a sense of duty. Just love the people around you. And that may involve uh, saying no to some people. I mean, if somebody starts acting in a racist way, you can lovingly and severely say, no, that's not right. No, I agree. Um one of my one of my favorite ministers that from one of my wife and I's first church used to say, you know, you know, Christian, if you would do this, you it's not a euphemism, you could actually change the world and and he spoke often of what you just said. So, yeah, I I would agree wholeheartedly. Um very wholeheartedly. So, while we wrap up, where would you point people to learn more about yourself? Obviously, there's your book, but but more importantly to just educate themselves in such a way that that as they wrestle there's there's a good place to to go with with text that has been well researched and and maybe the scripture is is presented from the way that you do you know where the Calvinist or someone would say it this way and an Arminianist would say it this way and I would say it this way so where yeah. what is what is a good place for people to go as they're as they're searching my Willamette University website you could probably just Google my name but uh, I'll just real quickly read it. Uh, www.willamette.edu. T. Talbot. Two T's at the beginning and two T's at the end. Okay. I'll put that in the, um, we'll put that in the notes as well. Thomas, I appreciate it very much. I'm, I'm thankful for your time. Pouring 
That episode still speaks to me. And, and when I'm honest, I lean still towards annihilationalism. I feel like that is the best way hermeneutically to, to read the scriptures. But I am ever hopeful that I'm wrong. I am so hopeful that what folks like Thomas Talbot and, and many, many others, that what they argue is a good look at what the future holds for creation, not just humanity. I'm really hopeful that they're right. I just don't know that I can hold that yet, but who knows where my faith will take me. I do know this. So on Palm Sunday, I, with my church, you know, Baptist church, we, we gathered with Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians and our Catholic brethren and the Church of God and Christ brethren. And we marched through downtown of where I live. And I just kept thinking, I don't know what the afterlife looks like, but I really hope that it's that. People of all races, every gender, nuanced beliefs, who knows? I'm sure in there there would be also, you know, statistically there would have had to have been people that are, you know, LGBTQ in that group, but we all marched in celebration of the coming uh, of Easter and in remembrance of Palm Sunday together. Nobody argued, nobody bickered. We just exuberantly sat in community with each other. We sang a bit, we prayed a bit, and it was beautiful. And I hope that that's, that's what we're all going to do. But I really, really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Thomas. I would highly recommend getting his book, The Inescapable Love of God. It is a very even approach and holds everything in a way I think that is respectful. So today's music is from Andy Squires. Uh, I got turned on to him from John Mark McMillan when I asked him who he was listening to. And he told me this person and I was like, I don't know who that is. And then I went to um, you know, Spotify or iTunes or wherever and started founding, found his music and just heard so much in it that I could relate to. And it's beautiful and it's haunting and it's gripping, uh, but mostly it's truthful. And that's what I really appreciate. So I hope that you enjoyed it. You'll find links to his music from this show on the playlist at Spotify uh, for the show. And you'll find links to that at the website. Please remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. Talk to you next week. Yeah.